Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapist. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and occasionally we jump into some of the cultural and racial issues that are going on in the world, how to be knowledgeable of working with different cultures, working towards a cultural humility in understanding people from a number of different backgrounds. And if you've somehow managed to avoid anything in the news over the last week, there seems to be (laughs) a culture that we've been meaning to talk about for quite a while. It seemed really relevant to bring up now just because it does seem to be so pertinent. It seems to be affecting a lot of not only clients who are coming to us, but also a lot of people in the therapist community. And this is uh, the Iranian Persian community. And we are bringing on a, a couple of people to help us navigate this conversation. First, we have Pardis Madabi. She is the professor and director of the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. And we're also joined by Nagin Musavian. She's an associate marriage and family therapist here in the Los Angeles area. And thank you both for joining us today and lending your knowledge and expertise to us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. So, Pardis, uh, we went to college together, so I'm so pleased that we were able to reconnect and have this conversation together. One thing that we ask all of our guests is, who are you and what are you putting out in the world? It's a big question, but a great question to start with, Katie. <laughs> and it's, it's really wonderful to, to reconnect with you and think about all that's transpired in the two decades plus since college. So as, as you all mentioned, I'm, I'm a professor. My PhD is actually in medical anthropology because I wanted to study sexuality, sexual politics specifically. You know, after I graduated from Occidental studying diplomacy and world affairs, I, I went to Columbia to continue studying international affairs, but fell in love with anthropology mostly because of the method. I was really moved by the approach of anthropology to live with communities and learn from and kind of a, a, a bottom-up approach as opposed, to, as opposed to a top-down approach. At the same time, I started traveling back to Iran uh, for the first time. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm a child of the revolution. Um, my parents came in the years just preceding the revolution. So I was actually born in the United States, but I never visited Iran until I was 20 years old. Uh, so I began traveling back uh, uh, back to Iran in, in the 90s. But growing up, I, I felt a sense of um, liminality, you know, not belonging neither here nor there, existing betwixt and between cultures uh, all my life. So I never felt 
uh, like I belonged in America. I felt like I was too Iranian in America. Uh, and then when I started traveling to Iran, you know, initially I went to Iran because I thought well, maybe I fit in there. But then I, I realized I'm too American in Iran. And so I was really interested to start, you know, learning from researching with initially women's movement activists, feminist activists in Iran. So I initially started going to Iran when I was still an undergrad at Oxy and I was writing stories for the Los Angeles Times magazine. And I went to cover the women's movement. But when I arrived in Iran, the thing that was on everybody's minds and mouths was uh, what young people call a sexual revolution or engelabagensi in Persian. Uh, and I was fascinated by the way in which young people who were dissatisfied with the regime were seeking to attack the regime by using their bodies to speak back, by comporting their resistance, if you will. And, and I think it bears mentioning that Iran has one of the youngest demographics uh, in the world. 70% of Iran's population uh, is under the age of 35, which is pretty significant. Um, so, so this large youth population born after the revolution, many born during the Iran-Iraq war, you know, they, they had a really different take on, uh, on the regime and many were disaffected by the regime. And so, you know, they, they were, they were very active in articulating their concerns with the regime. So I was fascinated by this movement and I, I, I started researching, you know, Iran's sexual revolution and, and decided to stay for my PhD in, in anthropology and medical anthropology at Columbia. Um, and that became my dissertation and the topic of my first book, Passion Uprisings, Iran's Sexual Revolution. You know, from there, I've, I've continued to, to follow uh, feminist activism, women's rights movements, sexuality, and human rights movements in the Middle East. Uh, so while my first book was on Iran, um, my subsequent three books um, have been on the Gulf, focusing really on the United Arab Emirates, uh, Qatar, uh, Kuwait, and looking at questions around sex work, uh, human trafficking, labor migration. And we're also joined by Nagin Musavian. She's one of our Modern Therapist staff. She's uh, been with us here for the last couple of years, and she was actually one of my students at Pepperdine University. So uh, you want to fill people in a little bit more about you? Otherwise, I'm just going to keep gushing about all of the wonderful work that you've been doing with us. <laughs> yes, I do work in Kurt's private practice, and I specialize with millennials, specifically dating, but also Iranian-Americans. And my point is kind of to reach Iranian Americans from point of trauma and dealing with that time of the revolution. And when, you know, coming from different families where some did come during the revolution and having that dual, like not feeling like you belong and, you know, coming from that point, uh, I think it's a really important aspect to touch on. I think it goes unseen a lot of times. So yeah, I have a really strong passion to bring my culture into my practice too. So it's not a simple sort of part of the world, especially for those of us who are maybe just passively listening to headlines in the news, that the way that stories about the Middle East and, and especially Iran in general seem to be really politicized in ways that, as Hardis was talking about, I love this term liminality, and just kind of wanting to say just there's a lot of opinions out there how do how do we listen on this like what's what's the way that we go about this to be informed in ways that are supportive of Iranian Americans or for our listeners all over the world uh, people who may be coming from the Iranian community 
Well, I mean, first, I think it's important to be informed, right? Um, I think that this is a time of heightened uncertainty uh, on on all sides. You know, I talked to my family and friends in Iran, and and they're they're frightened. They're 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 truly they're truly afraid because there's so much uncertainty. And and on this side, you know, everybody's afraid, worried what's going to happen next, right? But in times of uncertainty, fear can quickly turn to hate. And I think as an Iranian-American, that's something that I worry about um, uh, because when, when people don't understand something, are not informed by something, and when uncertainty is you know, really clouding uh, our, our vision, um, very quickly people can start to take that fear and make it hate. And so what, one of the concerns many of us have as Iranian-Americans right now is we fear this crushing you know, tsunami-like wave of Islamophobia that threatens to yeah. wash across this country right now. Um, and and that, that's been building really throughout, you know, this president's term, really since 2016. But right now, it's, it's gaining some powerful and frightening momentum. And if there's anything that I know about American history, it's that we will turn around and just totally embrace minorities, <laughs> like, as soon as this is all up. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah, it's it's going to be great. We're no, all going to be hugging. This is a you know a super justified fear. I mean, we we saw this after nine eleven. We yeah. saw this during the eighties with the Iran Contra crisis, right. the Japanese internment camps during World War Two, the ever present ongoing native like yeah. Th- this is a totally justified fear. Yeah, and and you know it's it's interesting you mentioned the the, the Iran Contra actually, Kurt, because that's something that hugely impacted my childhood. So I, as I mentioned, I was born here. I was born actually in Minnesota. Um, I was born in Minnesota, um, you know, in the late seventies. I don't want to exactly date myself, <laughs> um, but you know, um, by the early eighties, um, Iran Contra was happening, and the Iran hostage crisis was happening, and. One day I came home from school and there was a sign. This is in Minneapolis. There was a sign posted in front of my door and it said, burn this house, terrorists. Live. Oh, wow. And, you know, my father decided then and there that it was time for us to pick up and move to Southern California. And it was interesting as we were moving, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about my parents because, you know, they had lost everything in Iran and come to the United States and we were in Minnesota. And then here we were, we lost everything again. You know, back to your, your earlier question, Katie, one of the things I remember my father saying to me, I was, you know, very young, I was an elementary school kid at the time as we were moving to California. And he said to me, you know, people can take everything from you. They can take your home, they can take your belongings, they can even take your country. But the one thing they can never take from you is your education. They can never take your mind. And that was one of the things that really instilled in me the value of, of higher education. So, you know, right now I'm, I, I'm a scholar, but I'm also an administrator. And, and the reason I've gone into higher education administration is to help others get what can never be taken from them. That's so powerful. Wow. To me, just to kind of take a step back a little bit, because I think there are a lot of us who aren't as knowledgeable and a lot of our listeners that may have no knowledge at all about the history of Iran and how it's intersected with the history of the United States. Can you give us a little bit of a primer? (laughs) How long do you have? (laughs) Remember, I'm still a professor. No, um, I mean, I I guess for the the purposes of, of what we're talking about today, 
you know, and, and the moment that the United States and Iran find themselves in. I think it's useful to think about a few particular moments in time, maybe starting with 1953. Okay. Right. So 1953 was the CIA-backed coup that overthrew uh, Mossadegh, who was Iran's democratically elected leader. Um, and within four days, the CIA uh, initiated a coup that, that removed him in 1953. So thus began this, this very, you know, rocky and tense uh, relationship. Um, during the period of the, uh, of the Shah's reign, you know, U.S.-Iran relations were warming uh, to a point where actually some people felt concerned because there was this distrust from 1953. And so the regime that, that is in power today, that came to power in the 70s, they actually came to power on a platform of resisting West toxication, which is that infatuation with the West. Um, the, the, the Persian word there is qarb zadegi, which is, which is interesting that, you know, the, the Islamists came to power saying, you know, we've lost our way, we've lost our morality, we've become overly intoxicated with the West. And so, you know, Khomeini came to power on this platform of restoring a moral order and restoring an Iranianness. From, from the Shah, who, has, who had made, at the time, Iran overly um, westernized, mm-hmm. I suppose. So you have that, that, so you've got 1953, and then you've got 1979, which is the revolution where Khomeini comes to power and ousts the Shah, um, right. and, and things really reverse very, very quickly. Um, so, you know, I look a lot at, at culture, and I look a lot at youth cultures and subcultures and, and how people embody and comport their politics. So, you know, visually, if you think about it, you go from looking at women in miniskirts with, you know, very extensive hairdos (laughs) to women in hijab, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Almost overnight, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think women's bodies are a really interesting site to, to analyze the, the um, history of Iran. It's kind of what I, what I do in my work. Um, but so then you have 1979, which happens. And then, so, you know, in, in 1979, you have, you, the revolution had happened. And then in the 1980s, you go into the, Iran goes into the Iran-Iraq war. Now, due to the revolution and the war, um, Khomeini and, and his team enacted pronatalist policies where they encouraged families to have as many children as possible. And the way that they did this was that any family that had more than two or three kids got a tax break, and any family that had five kids or more got a free plot of land. So this, this is how we get to this demographic bulge that sort of resembles a snake swallowing a rabbit, if you will. Um, so you had these pronatalist policies in the 80s, and families were encouraged to have a lot of children. By the 90s, they realized that the birth rate had shot up Right, and that they were going to ha- they were not going to be able to support this this huge population, and so they did the regime did a 180, and they put family planning policies in place, <laughs> and so they said, you know, if you have more than two kids, you're going to get taxed, um, and they had all this this mandatory family planning um, education and programming for all couples wanting to get married. So the fertility rate for women went from 4.5 to 1.7 in a span of like two or three years, which earned Iran the award for family planning from the United Nations um, <laughs> Fund for <laughs> UNFPA, which is kind of what people don't know about yeah, that. You know, Iran yeah. got the family planning award. Who, who would have thought? But so what ended, up ha- what ended up happening then is you have a huge number of people who were born basically between 1979 and 1995. You've got this huge demographic bulge, highly educated among the most educated populations in the region, um, if not the if not the continent. Sixty um, percent of university graduates are women, um, so highly educated. And 
the more they, they became educated and the older they got, the more disaffected they became with the, with the regime. So then, you know, you, you know, you have Khomeini's death. And then another key turning point, I think, is, was the election of um, Khatami, right? Uh, and so then you have this, this period in the late 90s uh, and early 2000s of, you know, moderation, kind of an opening up, people call it, an opening up for, for Iran. But, you know, young people were, were still gaining power and momentum and strength. And then you had the election of President Ahmadinejad. And that's when, again, you start to see rising tensions between the United States and Iran. Uh, and, and also an increase in the, in the youth movement. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of documented the sexual revolution between 2000, 2006, 7. So my book came out in 2008. And at the end of the book, I argued, you know, I think this is going to lead to a civil, right type, civil rights type movement. Um, and in 2009, sure enough, we had the Green Movement, mm-hmm. which you're all familiar with, where, you know, young people in the streets protesting the re-election of Ahmadinejad. And, you know, it's interesting. Many of us who study Iran right now have wondered if that wasn't a missed opportunity for, for, for Washington, right? Um, you had a large number of people in the streets protesting, trying to unseat the hardliners. And the question being, you know, where was the support then? If people were really committed to regime change, where, where was the support of that local organic movement, which, which would have probably changed the regime, you know, without having to cause we're calling World War III right now. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, 2009, I think, is a, is a particular turning point. Um, and then you, you had a series of feminist movements. Um, the One Million Signatures campaign started in 2006, My Stealthy Freedom, which is 2013, 2014. And then the world has really been watching um, the just mass protests that have involved people from a variety of, of religious backgrounds and a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds pouring into the streets 2017, 2018, and then 2018, 2019 as well. But all of that right now uh, has kind of been quashed because with the recent U.S. uh, aggression, um, suddenly the Iranian regime has a lot more power Mm. um, and a lot more weight to, to calling the United States the great Satan. Yeah. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out of network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. And this is impacting Iranian Americans and especially in ways uh, I know that you bring up, you know, that the world has been watching, but I think in some of the ways that this has been limiting is, you know, 
if it wasn't for Nagin, I wouldn't know about the internet shutoff, the ways that mm -hmm. the financial impacts of Iranian Americans have kind of been happening over the last couple of decades mm -hmm. here. And I think that this is really important in understanding what it is for clients and people who are seeking support at this time as well. Yeah, and I, I think that that you know, I'm I'm really glad that Nagin that you are working on on this trauma because you know I know that when I was when I was young and growing up, you know, my parents always had one suitcase packed, ready to go back, mm -hmm. right? And that feeling of okay, well, this is temporary, and we'll just we'll be here in the United States for a little bit, and you know, this was in the 70s and early 80s, and and then we'll go back, and then this slow, very challenging and, and very emotional transition to saying maybe we can't go back or, or, you know, what's going to happen to us and, and, you know, how do we make a home here? How do we make a sense of belonging here in the United States when there is so much tension between, between, our, you know, the, our, our ancestral country and, and, and here. What do you think the impacts are, you know, cause I, I, I picture this suitcase packed and that just was so, vi that was very visceral for me to think about that, the kind of this impermanence, a feeling of impermanence. I think that there's so many different ways that this shows up for both Pardis and Nagin. You know, what do you think the impacts on, on what's happening in Iran to Iran? Like, what do you think is, you know, how, how do we get our heads around what this feels like so that we can, empathize with our, our clients who are coming and seeking support? I mean, I think, I also think it's important to, to note that your, your, your clients will probably be having a wide range of emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And, and people are going to have different positions and people are going to have different experiences. One of the things that's happened for me and my social media feeds is people really, you know, as much disagreement as there is in Washington over what's going on, there's a lot of disagreement amongst Iranians and Iranian Americans, right? And and then you have people who are feeling conflicted. So on the one hand, they're they're frustrated at you know how 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 could the United States initiate this? How is this happening? People are shocked. Why why assassinate Soleimani? Why? And people are feeling fear fear and and concern and sadness. They're on the one hand fearful, you know as I mentioned, you know, fearful for our own experience here, this wave of Islamophobia that's coming. On the other hand, there's this feeling of, you know, and I, I've heard some people on my, on my feed saying, okay, but this could be bringing about the regime change, yeah. right? And, and so there, is, there are people who feel conflicted, genuinely conflicted and saying, well, on the other hand, it's, it's interesting. In California, you have, uh, and in Arizona too, actually, you have a pretty strong presence of Iranian-American uh, Iranian Republicans. And Nagin probably is, is familiar with, with these folks. And they've actually been quite supportive of President Trump um, because they feel that, that, that Trump will remove the regime. Now, I don't think anyone agrees with methods, the methods, but they feel like, well, you know, this is some pressure that's been needed for 40 years. So people are feeling conflicted. You know, I, uh, I think different people are experiencing different components of this. You know, for me, the, the biggest weight is the sadness. Why is this happening? And it's just, for me, it's coalesced like 40 years of, of that liminality, of that crushing in-betweenness, of that crushing sense of not belonging. Um, so for me, that, my big focus is I'm sad. I'm concerned about the violence. I, I, I'm very sad. I'm very worried, and I'm also very worried about about hate, uh, you know, breaking out. 
but, and I, so I think your clients are probably going to be feeling a number of, of feelings all at once. Some people are going to be concerned about the destabilizing effect it has on the Middle East. So we've been talking a lot about Iranian American, Iranian American clients, but many of my Arab American friends are terrified right now, right? Many of my Iraqi American mm. friends, many of my Lebanese American, my Syrian American friends, um, and, and folks in the region, you know, and as I mentioned, I've done a lot of work in the Gulf. And my friends that I've been speaking with in Dubai, in Abu Dhabi, in, in, in Doha, they're also very concerned. So I think we also have to think about the region. So you, you might want to think about also your clients who are just, you know, um, Muslim American yeah. as well. Because, you know, I, I also have friends who, who are not Iranian, who are not Arab, um, who are South Asian and who are Muslim. And I, I, I in fact, I, I remember on Thursday night, I had text from a number of my friends saying, do we now have a target on our backs? Mm. Right. So, you know, I think it's important to think not only about your Iranian American clients, but how wide sweeping um, that that fear and that sadness is right now. For a lot of American therapists, we hear these kinds of fears from clients. We, we hear these kinds of you know, whether it's culturally related or not, we, we tend to try and help people take their feelings, make, making the personal, political, going and doing something with these feelings. What is it that's unique about Iranian clients that may not afford them kind of the same opportunities that, you know, traditional white American clients might be facing? Well, this is also going to be generation specific, right? So, so I think, you know, my parents' generation, our parents' generation of, of Iranians, they still carry that, the anxieties about speaking out and that brought them here, Yeah. right? Uh, so they're, they're a little bit, they're, they have that fear. I think my generation has been a lot more outspoken uh, because we didn't, we didn't live the revolution in the same way that our, that our parents did. But I think my generation suddenly right now, like I said, fears, um, you know, this, this Islamophobia, like I said, do we have a target on our back now? The one thing that, that I think many of us have appreciated is the support and solidarity that has come um, from other ethnic and racial groups uh, at this very challenging time. You know, I know that the black community and the indigenous community, certainly here in Arizona, have been incredibly supportive. They were among the first folks to reach out to us saying, we know what it's like to have a target on your back. How can we support you? Um, and, and so, you know, I think many of us have, have deep gratitude for that as, as we're struggling with this, this fear right now that's settling in. Yeah. And I feel like you said different generations have different effects on, you know, speaking out and advocating. So my parents, like, it's limited to what I can post and advocate for. So for them, the fear is, you know, don't share too much about your opinions and it'll affect you going back to Iran. And so that affects how much I share too. And that's the whole generational, you know, trauma coming in, you know, during the revolution, we couldn't speak up that much about our opinions. So don't do it either. You, you know, that fear of like, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you can speak to that too, because, you know, I'm sure that when I have kids, they're not going to need to worry about that. But, you know, it's something that I'm dealing with that both the opinions of like, you know, the people that were born here, like, let's go protest. And for me, it's, I'm dealing with both of those impacts. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's yeah. for me, it, at least. What has been your experience, Nagin? like when you go, one, when you go back to Iran and, and I, one thing that was really eye opening for me was when I went to Iran and I saw all the people who are our age who were protesting. What was your yeah. experience when you saw that? So for me, I haven't been back in, since 2014, 
But, you know, you spoke about feeling like no sense of belonging here or there. For me, I felt way more American when I went there, when I was younger in 2014. But now I feel way more Iranian and I'm protesting or trying to through social media. But I've gotten a lot of backlash from it. Um, Like you said, varying opinions. So I have people that are like, you know, it's good that we're doing this and we're going to change the regime. But for me, I, I feel conflicted and it's affecting my, you know, my ability to advocate. And I, the protests in Iran, I, I feel like that's their way of having a voice. Um, I think that they get punished a lot for having a voice and it's different here. Like that's not going to happen here, the punishment that we get. But, you know, in terms of I think people should advocate, but mm-hmm. in different ways. Yeah. I, I know I was, I was really moved by seeing people our age uh, speaking up and speaking out and willing to risk going to jail, willing to risk being lashed for, for speaking out. Because like you, I had grown up with parents who said the same thing, you know, don't, po- don't, sit, don't speak your opinions too loudly. You know, I, I was thinking about the Hamilton, you know, Aaron Burr, talk less, smile more kind of thing, <laughs> right? And, and yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like Iranian Americans should get a shirt that says that. But, uh, but then when I went to Iran, and I saw that, no, our culture doesn't tell us to be quiet. Uh, you know, here's this whole generation of people who are showing such courage and speaking out. And that for me yeah. was incredibly inspiring in helping me find my feet and f- helping me find a sense of belonging in and through yeah. transnational feminist activism. Because the Iranian people are different than the Iranian Yeah, and, and because the Iranians in Iran are different than the Iranian Americans and so much more brave, right, in, in many ways. I mean, I think Iranian Americans are also incredibly brave, especially, you know, as the generations go on. But, but the courage that, yeah. that, that young people in Iran have shown, especially if you think about the Green Movement 2009 and My Stealthy Freedom and yeah. these protests, they've shown tremendous courage. And I think one of the things that has happened in this last week is when you know, Americans consume media about Iran, the way Iran is consumed, eclipses that. And it elides the huge amount of um, courage that so many activists have shown uh, over these last couple of decades. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. So I'm, I'm glad that you're you're bringing up this piece about the way now, especially because... You know, when we first reached out to Pardis and Nagin about coming on to this was just a couple of days ago. This was the the you know, sky is falling, World War Three is happening tomorrow. We we had very naive questions of where are things going to be in five years that we kind of settled on. We don't even know where things are gonna be in five minutes. And very much over the last couple of days, and even between recording this and our our publishing date, I'm certain that things are gonna be changing again. But the narratives that are coming out of the media, it, it cannot be easy to be a, an Iranian anywhere in the world and seeing this, this conflation between the way that the Iranian government is and, and Iranian people. And I'm 
hoping that you can speak to that experience a little bit here too. Yeah. And I think actually this is where mental health professionals can really help us. You know, one of the things that many of us are struggling with is in this time of uncertainty, as you said, things change every five minutes. Um, how do we talk about it? How do we talk about it with our kids? You know, and, and, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the impact this is having on, on my children. So my, my daughter's nine years old. Uh, and we were flying back Saturday from San Diego, which is where my parents live, to Phoenix. And we were in the airport and we were at the sort of magazine stand. And they saw, my kids saw the covers of all the newspapers and magazines that said, you know, war with Iran. And, you know, I just saw my daughter standing there at the at the news rack and, and her eyes were just growing really big. And, you know, I started to see sort of tears forming in her eyes. And and, you know, she said, is this, is this really happening? And I said, yeah, it's definitely happening. And she said, but, but mom, you know, if the U.S. and Iran are such enemies and they're, they're so much at war, what does that mean for those of us who are U.S. and Iran in one body? You know, and for me, I felt that she had put words to something I'd been struggling with for 40 years. You know, what is it to live, you know, with two, in a sense, opposing cultures uh, in one body, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you think about that? And, and, and how do we, how do we talk to the children about it? Yeah. I mean, for me, I remember seeing, you know, the protests and the videos because I'm, I've never, like, I didn't see all of that before. And I remember telling my dad, you know, being very fearful of what's going to happen. And he kind of reassured me. He's like, you know, things change because we've witnessed that you know, five minutes, five days. And so it's difficult. I, I agree with your daughter. I mean, on one hand, you're kind of empathizing with the Iranians in Iran. And on the other hand, I'm American too. So it's like this, this back and forth of like, you know, it's confusion. It's where do I belong? You know, am I for there, like for them, or for here? And it's difficult, but I, I mean, it's for me, I try to gravitate towards what's right and, you know, I, I think that in terms of Iranians, they're advocating for freedom and the right to voice what they want. And I think that's where a lot of my back and forth goes of like, where do I even stand on this? You know, it's, it's confused. Even when I talk about it, I'm like mm-hmm. confused, Yeah, you know? And, and there, there's this question of, well, where do we go? What happens next? I mean, I remember in 2016, uh, when when Trump was elected and the Muslim ban happened, and I I remember oh, that yeah. you know actually my my say my daughter came home from school and and she said that someone at her in her class at the time I think she was like a first grader and she someone in her class had said, you know now that Trump's elected you're going to have to go home, and you know I remember her mm-hmm. coming home and to me and saying I, I don't even I don't understand what that means like where are we supposed to go we 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 don't fit in Iran yeah. and they're telling us we don't fit here so. It, it, you know, Trump saying, send, send them home. Where are we supposed to mm-hmm. go? You know? Yeah. Go back to your but, country. I mean, you feel like, yeah, where, where is, is my country? country? And also yeah. what happened to my country? And this you know? is the part that I'm yeah. really hearing is that for, especially a lot of Caucasian Americans that, you know, maybe fascinated with genealogy that can trace their roots back, you know, several hundred years to, relatively stable countries. You know, it's easy to point to, oh, my ancestors came over from England in the 1600s and, you know, it's more or less the same place. Whereas even from one generation to the next of what you're talking about, that it's 
it's the same place, but it's not the same internal place that is really missing. And there's really that search for identity there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when my mom came with me uh, in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, and she was born and raised in Tehran and we got there and uh, all the street names had been changed. And I just remember she was trying to find her house that she grew up in and she just stood in the, in the, in the middle of, of, you know, a, a series of streets and she was crying because she was just trying to figure out how to get back to the home that she was born into because everything had changed. And I think it's important to understand that the revolution also impacted the opinions of a lot of Iranians that came here in terms of generationally, like, you know, I have a lot of people that a lot of friends actually that do not identify Mm -hmm. as Iranians and they, they get angry for, you know, when they hear me like, you know, advocate and, you know, say like, this is wrong. And why would you say it's wrong? It's right. They destroyed my family or, you know, I, my parents got divorced because of the revolution and whatever's happening now should be happening. And so that speaks to what you said about the difference of opinions because of the way it's impacted in different, Mm -hmm. different ways. The, the one question we often ask that, you know, I, we can kind of think through it in a different way because I know you're not a therapist, Pardis, but um, therapists often miss things and they often get things wrong, especially when they don't have the knowledge and the understanding of their client's experience. And so to me, I mean, we often say, what do therapists get wrong? But you started to say, this is how therapists can help. So maybe we can go from a more positive aspect of, of what are the things that therapists should really be looking for, things that would be helpful. You know, in a practical way, our, our survival guide for therapists, what do, what do you want parties for, for, for therapists to know? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would, want, I would want therapists to consider this context of, you know, 40 plus years of weight that for many of us uh, are unresolved issues. They're, they're things that, you know, we haven't dealt with head on. And suddenly now we're being forced to do that, right? You know, we've, we've su- suppressed it in many ways. You know, I, I remember hearing a therapist once say that depression is a traffic jam of sadness. And, and I feel like, you know, for 40 years, for so many of us, that traffic jam has been building and building and building. And we've never tried to like clear the freeways, if you will, you know? And, mm-hmm. and it, so I think that, that, that very long context of, of, of pain and angst, I think is something that I would want therapists to know about and to help, help us to clear that traffic jam and to think about, okay, well, you know, what were the impacts? It's, it's interesting, you know, I'm now starting to think about things that happened in the eighties that I just didn't deal with head on. So I think that's really helpful. But I also, I think, it, I think it would be really helpful for therapists to help us think through how we talk about this with our families. So I, I mentioned my kids, but, you know, many of us are married to non-Iranians. My husband is Chinese American. And, you know, how do we talk about this at the dinner table, you know, without it impacting families so much more than, you know, they've already been impacted. My kids have already been impacted by what's going on, by the news headlines, really, and since 2016, by the narratives about Muslims and and Islamophobia, they're already impacted. How do we keep the family unit strong? And how do we talk about this with our non-Iranian partners or with our half-Iranian children or with our, you know, Iranian-American children? All of us who are hyphenated, 
you know, mm-hmm. how do we narrate the experience of the hyphen? And to add on to that, I also think that it's okay for therapists not to know and ask, you know, like if you don't know something, ask about it, you know, ask how it's impacting them. Don't just assume that, you know, because you have a couple Iranian friends or you, you know, that they all feel the same way and everyone's different. I think that's really important. And I've seen that in my own practice with my Iranian clients. They all vary in the way that they feel about everything that's going on. I think that's a really good point, making sure that we really pay attention, stay informed, and then understand that this isn't a monolithic group of people who have one experience because the country has changed so dramatically. Immigration timelines are very different for different folks. The connection to Iran is is very different depending on a lot of different factors. And so staying staying knowledgeable, but also really, I like that, Nagin, really asking and, and seeking out that individual experience and what the things are that that person is facing, which is what we should be doing as therapists anyway. But I think it can be hard when there's something that's so dramatically impactful happening in all of our lives as Americans, you know, thinking about, you know, quote unquote, World War Three. I think we can, we can, get into that place of uncertainty and fear and not necessarily use all of the skills that we have. So I really appreciate both of you being here and helping us with this today. Um, Pardis, one of the things we, we like to do is kind of link to books and, mm-hmm. and all those things. So, so where can people find you? Well, you can easily find me at my personal website, which is www.pardismadavi.com. But I, as I said, I'm, I'm the director of the School of Social Transformation here at Arizona State University. Um, and uh, you, know, you, can, you can find information about me at ASU or on the web or on my, um, on my personal website. Uh, and I, I would just be really happy you know, for, for people to engage with, with, with my work. You can find me at therapywithnagin.com and my Instagram handle is the same. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll include links to both parties and Nagin's contact in our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. And while you're on our website, check out all of the cool stuff that Katie and I are doing. We're going to be speaking in Hawaii here next month. We got our third annual Therapy Reimagined conference coming up here in September in the Los Angeles area. and all sorts of other cool stuff that we're doing that I'm just not going to spend more of our time talking about. So check us out and on our socials. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy, Pardis Matavi, and Nagin Musavian. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.